Hey everybody, welcome back to the 56th episode of Taps and Patience, where one of the hosts uses the music to cut off the co-host, not only at the end of the podcast, but also at the beginning of the podcast. My name's AJ with Design the Everything, here with Harrison, who was so rudely interrupted a second ago, uh, of Precision Ingenuity. Hi Harrison, how you doing? I'm doing good, how are you? I'm better than that intro was. Man, I had a long day today. But it was a good day today. What about you? I was fairly productive today. Fairly productive. I, I saw on Instagram that you had some ISO 20 holders. Those yes. things are cute. So BT30 tool holder for the people watching the video. BT30 tool holder. ISO 20 tool holder. Oh, my goodness. They're so cute. So what ER call it sizes do they come in commonly? From what I can tell, there are exactly two options for ISO 20 tool holders, and they are ER16 or Rego Power Grip. That's it. That's the only options I found. Really? At least of the one side note here, there is a router, a CNC router version of the ISO 20 tool holders that do not work in the Haas tool changer. Those ones have some more options. But for the milling style ISO 20 tool holders, your choices are Power Grip 10 and ER16. And Do those the, have. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the Power Grips are really nice and really expensive. So those were not even an option remotely. Gotcha. Sorry, before I, before I rudely interrupted you, Drive Dogs. Does ISO 20 have Drive Dogs? Nope. Oh, okay. I assume it helps with the high-speed balance, but... Cool. Interesting. Hmm. So when when are you going to get that machine? When's delivery? That is a good question. Um, I'm still... Like, the freight company is still talking to the machine seller. They should get it on a truck, hopefully before the end of the week, and it'll take about a week to get here. Because it's coming from all the way across the country. You can probably wave at it as it goes by. Gotcha. So sometime late next week, best case scenario. That's exciting. Yep. So how how long do you think it'll take you to get up and running on that? If it, it, let's just say, hypothetically, it shows up on Friday next week, when do you think you'll start milling your first part on it? That is a good question. Running power and air isn't an issue. We already have air to where, where we're putting it, and we just need to pull another wire through an existing conduit, so that shouldn't be too bad. There does need to be some shop rearranging, but I guess that has to happen all beforehand. So it's basically just a matter of learning how to get it set up, setting it up, learning how to run it, and then running it. And gotcha. also possibility of used machine funniness. Um, mm-hmm. There will be at least one issue. I'm not sure what it is yet, but there will be some weirdness. Uh, I know that I'll need to install the coolant system at very least because it appears to be in a box um, or DIY something if the mystery box isn't actually the coolant system. But I mean, I would like to say a day or two, which means it's probably going to take me a week. But it'll be a really fun week. Okay. There'll also be a slow ramp up as I, you know, get things sorted out for the first time, like, you know, how am I like what programs am I moving over? I'll have to repost all my programs. I'll have mm-hmm. to figure out speeds and feeds. 
I'll probably start with something a little bit easier. I don't know what. Yeah. I know on Fusion they have the Haas next-gen controller, but do they have legacy ones on there? I haven't looked. It's got to exist. You're right. I haven't looked either, but I can't imagine it doesn't. And I know people who run this machine, and so I can get a, a post from them if it's not there. That's fair. Sweet. That's exciting. So it's amazing how much money you spend around a machine that's not actually the machine. Yeah. I only have 10 tool holders so far. Uh, it's I got these ones from Haas. It's about $700 for 10 tool holders. There's a It's a 20 tool ATC, so I can't even fill my ATC yet. But I'm trying to you know spread out costs as much as possible. I'm still a little bit torn about whether I'm going to put a Saunders plate on this thing right off the bat. I think I will. I think that $600 for the, the Saunders plate will pay itself back with, you know, a day or two of less messing around with work holding. Let's see. I still, I still haven't paid the freight company, but that's another $2,000. No riggers okay. on this one, but I'm renting a forklift and to have it delivered here is about $300. Okay. So, Do you know all the points that you need to pick it up from when you're moving it with a forklift? No. <clears throat> nope. I should okay. look at that, but I'm pretty sure you just lift it from underneath. Uh, it's designed to be pallet jackable. I don't it, think it, it has like fun slots or anything. So if that is the case, I would be so careful and try yeah. to find a way to strap it to where if it tries to tip off the forks, it's not going to fall. Yeah, I just can confirm because- there is no slots or anything. You just lift it from underneath. Okay, I would, I would, I would at at the very least, I would almost throw a strap all the way around the machine. It's probably a good idea, and strap it to the forks, just to mean if it, if it started to tip back and forth, that strap it probably wouldn't hold it from falling, but it would keep it from sliding or something. You know, I have some big old ratchet straps, ones that are like you know three or four inches across, and the machine is not that heavy. Yeah. I think a ratchet strap rated to like what? What are those rated to? Like 10,000 pounds? I think it'll keep a 3,000 pound machine from tipping. Yeah. And to that point, I almost wonder if it's worth putting the forks above it and running your rapid straps underneath it and kind of cradling it from the top. Then there's like no possibility of it falling over. Yeah. I'm not getting like a full rigging forklift. Because again, it's, I think you don't need a full rigging on a skid. You don't need a full rigging forklift for that. Oh, all you okay. do is all you do is you raise it up. You put your straps over your forks and clip them onto the inside of your forks, and then you line up your straps with the edge, or maybe slightly in from the edge, and then you can pick it up from the top. Okay. Um, the only huh? I said Haas does said say to not lift it uh, like use an overhead lift, but I think they mean don't you know stick some eye bolts and some yeah yeah holes. I think this would be fine. Yeah. I don't just know. Th- I'll leave that as an option. Yeah, just a thought. The only thing I would worry about doing it that method is that if the sheet metal sides, if 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 the if you can't pallet lift across the whole bottom, if the edges of the sheet metal are not sturdy at the very edges, when you yeah. go to pick up the straps, it could bend the metal in. That would be my only concern before I did that 100%. Um, but I would feel more comfortable in terms of rigging to pick it up from the top uh, because it's such a narrow 
machine, and I feel like it's going to be pretty top-heavy with all the weight of the spindle and controller and everything above it. I don't think it's got a whole lot of weight on the bottom end to counteract that. So I feel like it's going to be top-heavy and prone to tipping if you're not careful. That That is very possible. I wonder if I can find a picture of someone moving one. But uh, I'm on a different computer, so I can't show you my screen if I do find one. No, that's okay. Uh, and we don't have to go too deep down the rabbit hole for there. Just voicing my concerns about uh, rigging it yourself and uh, everything you need to watch out for because you won't have uh, riggers insurance or um, all that stuff. So taking all the precautions you can to not trash your new machine. <laughs> yeah, there's basically two scenarios that I'll have to deal with. Scenario one is we convince Trucker to pull down my um, driveway which is gravel and fairly narrow, but it is a very hard packed gravel. And if I'm doing that, then I basically just drive the forklift up, lift up the machine, pull back six feet, put it down, truck moves out and then, you know, pull it into the shop and then pallet jack it in place. That's by far the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, trucker decides he can't make it in our driveway. And then we would have a, two 300 foot little ride with the forklift and most of it would be fine because again it's it's flat hard packed gravel and but there is a slope from the road to my driveway and that little transition right there i think would be the the worst uh part of it Mm -hmm. a strap would go a long way to fix that Um, and i may like go down it backwards i think may make sense I'd, I'd get some wood, um, some two by fours or something that you can cut cut up to kind of use as braces if you need to use them in different locations. That seems to be a pretty common thing that a lot of riggers have is wood blocks that they can stick in different areas to both take the weight, but also not damage anything. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll grab some two by fours beforehand and you know stand by and, with my chop saw. And one thing that you could do, um, just doing a little more brainstorming, is... If you can't do the straps from the top and putting the forks through the bottom and putting a strap over it is still not, it doesn't feel sturdy enough to you. You could almost stick some two by fours on the under. How heavy is that thing? Do you know? The machine? Mm-hmm. I think it's about uh, 2,500 pounds without other things. Like if there, there might be um, a pallet or crating okay. or something else that makes it a bit heavier. But okay, that I think it's that might be too. He- that's probably too heavy to do what I was just about to say. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it just because it. You might think of something else if you run into the situation. But what I was thinking is, if if you can't put the straps around to the top, and you can't pallet from underneath, and you're worried about going down your drive your gravel driveway, and it tipping off, another option would be put your forks out wider than the actual machine is. Stick your stick wood underneath your machine to take the place of a pallet deal. And then when you strap over the top, strap over to the ends of the wood, and that'll kind of give you a wider base that'll make it harder for it to tip. Because the problem with the forks being on the inside is you're going to be on the inside of the feet pad of the foot pads. Whereas if you can extend the boards out even a little bit further and you can grab it on the outside, that's going to give you a wider base for your forks to grab onto, which should make it more stable overall in theory. 
And I think the worst case scenario is we um, put it down in the middle of the road and use my pallet jack with probably some, you know, sheets of three quarter inch OSB or something and just pallet jack it slowly along. Can you actually run a pallet jack on your gravel? So I would put down some like three quarter inch OSB and that that's fine. Okay. And have two sheets and just kind of leapfrog them along. Wouldn't be fast, gotcha. but that's very much not the goal of rigging. Yep. Yep. That's not a bad idea. That's a, that's a great idea. Actually, if you, if you're, if you can't get it over there comfortably with a forklift, that is plan B. So that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. I like that a lot because they plan didn't go very high. Plan A is just back the truck right into my um, driveway. Yeah, and then it's that's like plan D. It's like the, the last one on the list. Plan D is like black iron pipes and four by fours rolling it. Yeah, but I don't think I mean, it's really not that heavy of a machine. No, it shouldn't be too bad. We're probably making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah, but that's OK. It, this, it's, these types of topics are fun. Yeah, it, it's, it's a it it may be a mountain out of a molehill, but if this molehill falls over, my business is just done. So yeah, that that's the <laughs> that's the only reason we're we're talking about it so cautiously. It's like it's not it's not really an expensive machine in the grand scheme of things. It's not a heavy machine in the grand scheme of things. Um, but for where your business is at today, it would absolutely destroy you if that machine got damaged at the last leg, right there. Yeah. So. Technically, the machine is insured. So, I don't know. It's insured. Know it's insured. Out. I think until you take it off the trailer, as soon as or as soon as you touch it, and it's not. Or wait, wait. Are you talking about business insurance? I I have insurance on the machine. Oh, okay, okay. As, yeah, as part of the financing, is specifically you get insurance on the machine. No, oh, okay. Never mind. So that's cool. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Well, that'll be exciting. I cannot wait till you get that machine and start or start machining with it. And uh, having some ER16 tool holders for the first time, uh, you can actually hold some pretty large tooling in it. So, are you saying this is the first time with the ER16 tool holders? Mm-hmm. I use ER16 all the time. Do you not? I, I got some now. I got some oh, from oh, the tax. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, like oh, they're I, my favorite. Yeah, I really like them. I kind of want to switch all my 20s to 16s because just of the coolant and everything like i'm not really running that big of tools anyways um in the tormox so kind of want to move everything over to 16 yeah they're they're by far my favorites i i really wish i could find these in heat shrink but i just can't i've looked for them and you can find you can find them in iso 30 but Finding them in ISO 20 seems to be impossible. Yeah. How do you tighten that nut down if you don't have any dogs? I had the very same thought. There are uh, wrench flats right here. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. And it's got the the funny, like, castle nuts. Um, Fortunately, I already have one of those wrenches. Yeah. So, I had a fun long day. Tell me about it. I went to Haas Demo Day in... Uh, Oklahoma. So next state over. That was so much fun and I am exhausted. Did you buy anything? No, but I got a lot of names and I looked at a lot of stuff. Um, so I guess I can just go through the the list and I'll just try to go in the order that I hit them in the booth. So this is not any, in any particular order, just my day that I went 
So our first stop was at um, the Blazer booth. And I was looking at coolant. We're using Vasco 600, I think is what it's called. Oh, you're still using that stuff? Yeah. And I was talking, yeah, we got a, a decent amount of it when we got our first machine. I'm getting coolant. And I don't know what it is about the Blazer guys in my area, but anytime I bring up, hey, what, what do you guys think of that Synergy stuff that like Titans of CNC and a bunch of other places use? They all push me towards the Vasco, and I don't know why. So anyone who's listening to this, if you have any input on coolants and and specifically, you know, Vasco 600 versus the uh, Synergy, I think it's Synergy 735. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. Let me know. The only thing that me and Weston can figure out on that side of why they don't recommend it more is because... For the Synergy, the little bit of research that we did is you have to do it with an RO water and the Vasco, or I hope I'm saying that right. The Vasco 600, you don't. You can do it with a hard water. Okay, that is nice. And so I think that's the only reason they recommend it. And that's just because I don't think there's very many shops around here that invest in RO systems or are willing to, or or they'll put in the, the Synergy and they'll have problems because they don't have a proper system yeah that's the only thing i could think of but i couldn't get them to confirm it that i couldn't get the blazer guys to say anything other than they recommended this the 600 so do you with that coolant do you use ro water for the first fill as well or we don't have an ro system at all in our current facility um that's something i'm going to put in when we move shops okay so yeah because i have an ro system so yeah I I should probably actually call like Quali Chem and talk to him about coolants. I've used 251 and I've never really had any issues with it. But like I'm doing so much titanium that there might be a more titanium specific coolant. Mm-hmm. And if the if the Haas machine leaks less than my Tormach, then it might be worth switching to something else. I don't know. And yeah. they would give me five gallons as a sample to get started. And I do not have. Yeah, that lasts you a long time. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, the only reason I want to try to look at some different coolants is I had a bad luck with the quality cam, but I wasn't using it properly. So that's my fault 100%. The Vasco 600, it's not a bad coolant, but every once in a while we have surface problems, surface finish problems. And I'm not 100% sure if it's tool or if it's coolant. And I have the most problems on the lathe with it for surface. Do you have a coolant filter installed on that lathe? No. And that's another problem we got to address. It could be fines. It could be, but I don't think it's fines. If anything, the problem we run into is that it gets clogged and we get a lack of coolant. Um, Because um, the only thing that's going through the coolant that sometimes clogs is we've cut plastic and they're floaters and they just float and get sucked up by the pump. Talking to a couple different guys, aluminum and plastic, if you're using either one of those materials, you pretty much have to have a filter on your machine. Otherwise, there's a high likelihood that it's going to get sucked into the pump. If you have steels or stainless steels, they're heavy and they don't move enough that when they fall into the bottom of the, of the specifically the Haas machines, the odds that they make it over to the pump are very low 
compared to where the pump's located and where where your chips would enter the coolant. That's interesting. I wonder I wonder if titanium is kind of the worst of all worlds because it's light enough that it could be caught by like the surface tension on top. And also you tend to make smaller chips than you would with something like aluminum. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why I have so many issues. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would <clears throat> we're not using a coolant filter anymore on the Tormach since we since we upgraded to the larger pump and the larger coolant size or the coolant hose size. But I've always intended to add a coolant filter back into it and I need to. You will clog that ring up eventually. I know I yeah. I was. Yeah, and that's something that I we had a really small filter. And I just need to upgrade it to a larger filter. And I just haven't done that. And it's just because I don't think about it all the time. When I'm running certain types of chips, I've had it clog a lot. And when that happens, I go, oh, man, I need to do that. And then it just hasn't been an issue recently because I've been running a, a bunch of stainless. And the chips haven't been an issue for getting into the filter. So, Did you see LMD Machine's new coolant tank? I did. Isn't it cool? Oh, man, I want it so bad. So I, work. <laughs> I have I have dibs on like the first one, but now I don't know if I'm going to get it because uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep the Tormach very long. So mm-hmm. I bet if you want my dibs, you could have my dibs. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We've tricked out our Tormach so much. I think we're going to end up with the most tricked out Tormach that exists by the time we're done with it. Because especially especially <laughs> if I add a Renishaw probe. <laughs> probe. <laughs> so I'm going to have a. I'm going to have this this absolutely decked out Tormach because we also got our fourth axis. So we got a fourth oh, axis nice. for, for it now. So that came in. So, um, yeah, we're going to be we're going to have a the, the it's, it's like having the nicest Toyota Camry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, are you bragging? Like, what are you bragging about? Uh, just wait until you put a robot arm on it. Yeah, that's could That could happen. So I'll get to that. Did I tell you about the mystery crate that is coming with my machine? So I I just have pictures and videos of this thing. And in a couple of the pictures, there is a sealed box with tape. It looks factory sealed. Mm -hmm. It's sitting on the coolant tank. And admittedly, there is like the coolant system was never fully installed. So it's likely the coolant system. But the box is labeled in Sharpie probe. So there mm-hmm. is this chance that my machine comes with a second probe. It's probably not very high, but I might win the Renishaw lottery and end up with two of them. That'd be pretty cool. That would be very cool. You'll have to let me know if that happens. Cause if, yeah, it's, I'll, if, it's, I'll a, if a, it's a probe yeah. that I could use, I would probably buy that. Okay. So there's that. So that was our first stop was the coolant. Our second spot stop was, and I don't remember the name of the company, but they did, angle tool heads and live turning tools. Um, And so if we ever got a dual spindle Y-axis lathe or anything with live tooling lathe-wise, he was a pretty cool guy. What I really liked about his booth was, and they had a lot, lathe live tooling was there a bunch, which was funny because I don't feel like dual spindle or live tooling, live tooling lathes might, might be pretty common, but Dual spindle Y-axis lathes, at least from the groups that I've run with around here, they seem to all be scared of it. 
So it was for how many distributors there were for live tooling machines. I don't feel like there's that many machines that are actually around here, which is kind of funny. And I could be wrong. Maybe it's different on the Oklahoma side, but at least on the Arkansas side, I don't feel like there's very many shops that are actually running them because they're scared of them. Um, anyways, what I really liked about their turning, um, uh, their live tool setup and even their, um, 90 degree angled heads was that they all had quick change, um, miniature, uh, proprietary, but miniature like tool holders that you could swap out, which I thought was really cool. And so I really like those because if we did get a live, a live t- tool machine, being able to quick change all of our different end mills and things would be awesome. Yes. So I, I've always heard that they're like changing out those tools in a live tool blade is kind of a pain because they're yeah. like awkward and hard to get to. And yeah. And what's funny is everyone we talked to after that guy, they were like, Oh yeah, we have a quick change system, but all, all it was, was a, a way to where you didn't need to, to use two nuts. It was just a way to lock it. And then you're still in there with oh. a wrench taking, yeah. and they're like, Oh yeah, you know, you can put this little, tool in the special spot and then it locks it out so that you can get a wrench in there so you're not busting knuckles and i'm like okay like all of you guys this is still nut busting on the machine and like that guy over there he's got a little allen key that i can turn 180 and then my tool comes out and then i rotate it 180 and my tool's locked like that's actual quick change like all the stuff you guys are talking about that's it's just that's slightly easier change that's just slightly easier change that's just like that's like comparing an angle grinder to a tool holder and saying the angle grinders quick change because you can lock the rotation of it while you're changing, while you're unscrewing the nut. (laughs) So anyways, um, so there was that VersaBuilt was there. Oh, nice. It was actually the president of VersaBuilt. Oh, cool. Um, so that was really cool. I didn't realize that until I looked at his business card later and we're like, we're like, wait, that guy was the president of VersaBuilt. That's pretty cool. So anyways, Talked to him some, and there was a lot of UR robots that were at this event. And I talked to him. I talked to UR robot was there themselves. And then I talked to a bunch of other people that had them. And I took a poll of all the different people that had UR robots and all the other robot alternatives that were there in the building. And everyone that had UR robots or had the option to use UR robots with Fanic robots or some other brands, they all said the UR robots were very reliable. And the I think I probably got the most honest answer from the VersaBuilt guy. Mm-hmm. And he said that he said they're incredibly reliable. He has had heard horror stories of people having them go out after two years, but he he said that that has been he says that seems to be the exception and not the rule okay and talking to the actual ur guys he said they don't post any of their stats online but he said that they they used to be rated and this is not a public number this is not a number you're going to find anywhere this is me talking to a salesman so anyone who's listening to this don't take this and post it all over the internet and say that this is what they claim this is what I was told. I was told that they used to rate them at 50,000 hours, and now they've rated them at 100,000 hours. So they've 
within their most recent generation, they've doubled the the life rating before failure. Okay. Their mean time between failure, I think is what it's called. And they, they've changed it to 100,000 hours. So it seems like a lot. 100,000 hours is a lot of hours. Yeah. And he says that, and I asked him, because after my conversation with some of the other people on the podcast and outside the podcast, he said that's at full load. At max extension. So I don't believe it. That's 11 years of constant runtime. Yeah. And so no false wrong. <laughs> There's no way that's 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 just what I was told. And like I said, I'm not claiming this. I'm not saying that this is an actual stat. This is just what a salesman told me at an event where they're trying to sell me something. Now, what that, may be the case here is maybe the way they measure it, that's true. But you have to multiply that times like six different joints and like statistic it out. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be. But one thing that he did say was pretty cool is he said that if a joint goes out, he said you can replace it with a handful of tools. And he says it was like two to four grand to replace joint. Which is not that bad. So like even yeah. if I was even if I even if they only lasted two years and I had to replace a joint every once in a while, like I feel like they'd pay for themselves a hundred times over it by that point. So oh, I'm sure it'll still pay for itself. I I don't know. I've always heard that it was more expensive to fix than that. And that's what this guy said. And he, um he, once again, we're talking about a UR salesman, but he actually has a, a UR that he owns personally. And he loaned it to someone for a demo and they dropped it and it, it broke two arms and he had to replace it himself. So it might, his numbers, I believe are accurate. Now, what I don't know is if he got some kind of discount because he works with them and he's quoting numbers that he paid that you might not pay as an external customer. Yeah. And so, so that's what I, that's what I don't know. So like $6,000 per joint is probably yeah. safer. Yeah, six thousand dollars per joint. But to be fair, the the machines he priced because I asked him about you know rough pricing on these machines or on the on the arms, and they were they were between uh, thirty to sixty, depending on the model. And if you if you did thirty, if you know, let's just if you did thirty divided by six, that's five thousand. And they have six joints. So I feel like a replacement of around 2,000 or four, two to 4,000 is a reasonable number for that machine. And for their most expensive machine, that'd be doubled to like 10,000. So I feel like the, the, the two to four range is reasonable depending on the joint you're replacing on the machine. It might That might not be the case for the most expensive joint, but for one of your mid-tier joints that might be the one that actually dies, who knows? But regardless, I was super impressed. I wrote my first program on a UR robot, had okay. a whole bunch of fun. Took me about five or five to 10 minutes to, to run it and to set it up. The guy who I talked to last time worked for VersaBuilt. He must have never actually used a robot. And he didn't work for Versa or he didn't work for UR. Yeah, um, he worked for, uh, I think, Phillips. And he had never actually programmed one of those, but talking to the UR guys and having them walk us through it. It was 
stupid easy to program. Like I felt like it would take no time and anyone to do it. So I was really impressed with that. So anyways, all that to be said, talking to those two guys, because those are the, the two guys that I talked to next. I feel like a UR robot and the VF3 YT with a five axis trunnion still kind of riding that train right now. Okay. Just kind of, just kind of everything that I've been looking at and thinking of. And it's more than just the machine. It's more than just the robot. There's a lot of Haas support in my area. Yeah. And the Haas reps, if I get a Haas machine. So here's kind of some of my thinking. Um, while we were at the event in Tulsa, everyone that we talked to about the UR robots knew of the shop in Arkansas that had that we went and visited. They all knew about it. So if it's still early on and we can get a UR robot set up on a three on a VF three YT with a five axis robot, and we can become a hub that everyone brings their shop or everyone comes to, you know, Hey, we want to see automation in action and people start coming through our shop and we won't have to worry about marketing in the job shop space. People will just be filing through our shop to see what we're doing. We can, and we can kind of become like that bike company. They're not a job shop, so there's not a lot of benefit for them for people coming and viewing their stuff. But there's a heck of a lot of benefit if we can get to a point where we're the type of shop that, you know, the Haas reps, anytime anyone's like, hey, I want to see, you know, this. Well, come look at this shop over here. And uh, we could meet a lot of people, make a lot of connections doing that and be like free marketing. Except so. your customers are not going to be the people buying a, a Haas necessarily. Uh, yes and no. Because even 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 my biggest customer, who is my biggest customer, they have three or four Haases in their machine shop. Okay, fair enough. So my, my biggest customer has the exact same lathe as I do. They have, And it's actually a nicer ST15 because they got a few more options than we did. Ironically, they hate it. <laughs> because they think it's a baby machine and and they're I don't let me rephrase that talking to their machinists they're not huge fans they like the manual stuff oh of course <laughs> so um they have manual bridge ports and manual lathes and they're slowly transitioning into CNC but all the CNC stuff that they have is Haas so so I I feel like I would be able to make a lot of connections through the Haas network just because they've been in so many different shops. And I have a little bit more access to that as I get Haas equipment. Not that I will stay with Haas. It's not that it's going to be a long-term commitment. I don't know. I'm still figuring all that stuff out. But I'm 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 very impressed with the the network that they have and on the mill side at least, they seem to be very good quality on the lathe side there's some arguments that i could feel like could be made but on the mill side i'm everything that i've seen and and especially some of the demo parts that i was looking at today i'm i'm pretty comfortable on the on the mill side for haas yep they make good mills so anyways so that was one of that was one of the other boots i stopped at uh stopped at a cmm okay and it was a lot cheaper cheaper than I was expecting. 
for some of their smaller entry level units, um, under fifty. Who was it? I'm not sure. I'm gonna have to. I did. I I've left all my paperwork at the, at the, shop. Was it one of the big ones? There's like three no. big ones. It's one I hadn't heard of before. Okay. And that's why they're cheaper. No, well, no, the machine they had there was over a hundred. They just had some shop models that were smaller. They could only do like, like a like a under two foot by two foot, relatively small area. Um, and they had and they were designed for in shop use. But they're, I don't know. It was it was pretty cool, seeing their thing, seeing the CMM on there. See what else was interesting. Saw some air compressor guys. Talked to them. Hemsaw was there. So, him. Have you heard of a Hemsaw? So it's it's a really really accurate bandsaw. Interesting. And so he had a demo there where he had one of their baby models and he was cutting off like really, 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 really thin strips of metal bar. Like he was doing a mild steel, but he was cutting it like less than a 32nd inch thick as a demo. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And so they had some big units and they were they were cheaper than I was expecting as well. Although they're they're this is something that was annoying. Himsaw is, I guess, a European based company and they don't have small auto saws for the no. US market. So their smallest auto saw um, was in the 30 to 40 grand range. Oh, oof. Yeah. And was quite massive. And so and I was talking to him, I was like, man, you need a smaller one. He's like, I keep telling them that, but they won't. They won't send them over to the U.S. And I was like, man, if you could get a smaller one, I'd be all over that. I've heard the Tormach uh, AF50 or whatever it is isn't that bad. Yeah, I told him about that, too. I was I had that conversation with him. I was like, I was like, it's like Tormach sells an auto saw. They sell it for five grand. Like, it's basically the same saw we got just with an automation package put on it. And I was like, our saw isn't great. Like, it cuts with a little bit of a taper. Um, but if I could set it up as an auto saw for five grand and walk away and just let it feed, especially on some of these high volume jobs, I can deal with a little bit of taper in my machine. Like that's not the end of the world. Yeah. So. And have, have I told you about the condition my saw is in right now? Mm -mm. So do you remember when I blew up the motor on it? No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It like locked up or something. Yeah, well, it also took out the switch with it. Mm -hmm. And so in its current state, the switch is bypassed. So it just turns on when you plug it in, which is fine, but getting to the plug was inconvenient. So I had one of those like uh, remote relays that like woodworkers use on their shop vacs. Mm -hmm. And so now I have a remote controlled bandsaw. That's hilarious. It, it works. It's not ideal, but it works. That's awesome. I did finally replace the blades on it. And oh boy, did that make a big difference. Yeah, we probably need to replace the, the, the blade on ours relatively soon. Do you so. do you only have one blade or do you switch between blades for different materials? We've just been running one. Okay. Uh, this, time, this time I bought two blades. I bought a hard materials blade and I bought a uh, basically an aluminum blade. 
Well, and I haven't tried the hard material blade, but the aluminum blade seems to be a pretty significant improvement. So, so I will say this: we have multiple blades, but we don't trade them out, change them out. So we, we, you know, we in the beginning we set it up for aluminum, and it's like, oh, we got to cut steel, so we change it out to steel. Oh, we got to cut stainless. Oh, so we set it up to stainless, and it's like the stainless steel blade's not going to get damaged cutting any other of the other materials, but the aluminum blade will get destroyed if I try to cut stainless with it. Yeah. So we just pretty much set it up for stainless and it cuts all materials with that blade. So yeah. I used to have a multi-purpose blade on it and I mean, it worked in everything for a while, but I think it was especially the titanium that did it in. And it just, I feel like it had one tooth left on it and it would like take a cut and then go all the way around and then take a cut and then go all the way around and it cut, it left a decent finish, but it took forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I will say this though, Renishaw was actually there, so I actually got really? some con. I got some contacts, some local contacts. I told them about my woes with my Tormach, and the guy's like, "Yeah, I've never heard of anyone putting it on there." But he's like, "Send me an email," and he's like, "I'll see what I can come up with." He's like, "I think it can be." He said, "He, he said it. It should be able to be done." He said, "There's no reason." He says, "As long as it's got a skip signal and a power source, that's all you really need." But, yeah putting lipstick on a pig probably going to be doing it now would you have to find a way to send a wake-up signal to the renishaw so you can program them to be all have several different wake-up conditions oh okay i didn't and and i didn't know this until i started talking to him about it you can set it to be i think they have an accelerometer so you could do a spend awake oh that's nice so you can do that you can do a when it goes out of range it goes to sleep so if it's if if you have your receiver and if it's in the umbrella, as soon as it goes out of range, it'll automatically enter into a sleep mode. And then they had it where if you had the right signals, you could send it a signal to tell it to go to sleep or wake up. So that's another way you can do it. But the spin to wake was probably my favorite. I like that. So. Yeah, you'd have to add macros to the uh, or you have to alter the macros on the machine, but that doesn't seem too difficult. Yeah, yeah. You mean like you turn it up to 500 RPMs or something, right? Yeah, they were, they, yeah, something like that, just to spin to wake. So that, or if it's got an accelerometer and you cannot do a spin to wake, if you could just have it where, if it detects movement, wake up. Because all I really need to do is shut down whenever the machine's turned off. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it needs to be, is a sleep condition where if it detects no motion for, say, 30 seconds, go to sleep. If it detects motion, wake up. And then if it starts receiving a signal, um, when it wakes up, stay on until it's not receiving a signal and doesn't receive motion. So that'd be ideal. Makes sense. Anyways, I, I was about to throw the probe across the shop today. So we, I, I did, when we got back, I did a little bit of machining this afternoon. Uh, when we got back from the event, kept having problems with the probe. Uh, it was I. I need to call the guy from Zoom Speed. He gave me his number, but because of the time difference, if I tried to call him, it would have been like ten o'clock at night. Um, and so I need to do it in the morning, um, just because I'm sure it's a great product. But I'm fighting it left, right, and center. I haven't had a day go by that I haven't used it that I haven't run into a problem where I've had to tear it apart and hit the reset button or replug in the battery. And the thing is, is that 
it's a different condition every single time it stops working, it seems like. And so I can't nail down what we've changed out the battery. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it's the coolant, but then it's like, but it's still dry in there. So maybe it's not the coolant. Like this last time, it ran all day yesterday pretty good. I didn't really have any issues yesterday. I think I had one at the beginning of the day, but that was it. But then when it sat overnight, it, I think the cool, there was coolant that condensed on the inside of it. Um, and so during the day while it was hot and running, it wasn't a problem. But when it sat overnight, the coolant condensed. And I don't know for sure if the coolant got on it and was causing problems this morning but I uh, or when I got back this afternoon. Um, but I wiped it down and still had problems. But um, I feel like that eliminated at least that potential for problem for that one. So I don't know. I'm I'm fed up with it, and it's it's way too beneficial to not have a wireless probe. Like the the quality of parts. I'm in the process of running a batch of like twenty four stainless steel parts. And I'm probing, I've got three ops set up in my machine, and I'm probing all three ops. Um, it's op three, four, and five. It's a five-op part. And I am consistently within one thou or better on all my parts. And I don't have a hard stop on all the locations that I'm, I'm putting them in there because I don't have enough hard stops. And so I'm just getting it close, and I'm letting the probe touch it to, to make sure everything's good. And I'm consistently within a thou. So, so yeah, it the it's I'm producing way too good of, a, of my quality of parts is increasing way too much to not have a wireless probe in the Tormach at all times. Yeah, I I have started to see some minor issues with my uh, True Trotics probe again, which I'm really bummed about. Last week, I, at the end of the week, I ran in some issues. Now, I was able to fix those by slowing down the rough probing speed to, like, very slow. Which, if I, I actually remember having that slowed down the first time I was using it. And I think I just forgot about that setting. And it worked reliably for, like, a week or two. But then it stopped working as reliably. And I, I slowed that down. And it seems to be working again. But the one of the problems I run into is the the settings in Pathpilot for the rough probing speed and like the fine probing speed, they not only apply to the tool probe, they also apply to the table probe. And oh. I do tool breakage detections a lot in my programs. And they are now very slow. Because my my settings are two inches per minute at the um, at the roughing speed and one IPM at the final speed. You can be way faster than that, or is your? It's because of the, <clears throat> the Drutronics probe, and they share the same settings. Oh, so now the fortunately when I'm probing from Fusion. The fusion speeds and feeds for the probe take priority over the ones in the Tormach. So I can't actually bump it up on Pathpilot. But then I have to remember to um, slow it back down whenever I'm using the probe in the spindle for like setting a fixture offset or whatever. And I don't always gotcha. remember to do that. 
And when I forget tool changes, because it does the tool breakage detection, literally take like two and a half minutes sometimes. So so if it, if it uses all the functions from Fusion, why are you adjusting the Tormach one at all? If you can just set up the Fusion ones for one and the Tormach ones for the other. Because when you're just like quickly setting a uh, a work coordinate system, like you throw in a, a vice or whatever oh, and touch off the part for your first time. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And then, you know, you forget to set it back. Yeah. So is it just because the reaction time of the skip signal? It's, I think it may even be kinematic. Or actually, no, that I take that back. I think the answer is yes where if you push the the probe tip too far because of the delay in the reaction time it it gets stuck i think you just have to very lightly just barely move the probe tip at all which by gotcha. slowing it down like there's the i don't know you so get you, what i'm saying so basically the problem is not that it can't detect it at the speed the problem is that that if you go too fast it doesn't reset yes correct okay i'm following and you now the you know velocity times the skip signal delay time, which isn't very gotcha. much, but it's just enough. It's enough. So probably with a different tripod design, or um, does it have? Did you remove all the grease whenever you got in I there? I did. That could be your problem. I've tried. I've tried various things before. Before I replaced the part that I replaced. Oh. Um, I tried conductive greases. I tried non-conductive greases. I tried so, clean. So one, we had the same problem with our Tormach probe when we took it apart. And we found that we had to rotate the probe because the, the, the balls and the and the little thing that the, the tripod piece kind of would break connection every time you bump it. There was one. It was almost like it was set in such a way that they were precision fit to each other where if you rotated it it wouldn't work properly so like the so like think of it like a um oh how do i describe this properly there's only there's you have a one in three chance to put it well one in three chance to put it in the right spot i suppose that's possible but i've taken this thing apart and put it back together so many times it is possible though now, I don't know how it is for the Drutonics, but for the, the Tormach probe, it was real easy to test because we'd put it in one fixture and then I'd just hold everything together and then just try touching it in a couple different locations and make sure it's set and reset. And then I would rotate it, half assemble it, and try it a couple different times. And that's how I eventually figured out that that was one of the problems. And ever since I've done that, I haven't had any issue on the probe side. It's all been on the electronic side. I haven't noticed anything like that. And I've had this thing apart and back together dozens of times. Well, if it's not resetting whenever you're touching it, that's a mechanical problem. It might be. I almost wonder if it's the the heart, the electronics being weird. My theory is that the... How would speed fix that then? Well, I think it's a sensitivity thing where it is too sensitive. I think it's... I think the oh, is it like, like a the voltage that goes across the contacts is too low, and whatever system is in there is having a hard time reading the difference between a light contact and no contact. Gotcha. That's my theory. 
because I think it's like 3.7 volts. And I think the Tormach ones run on 12 volts. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I'm on a wireless connection now, so or wireless, so I don't know what it, the the probe's doing yet. But what what kind of battery does it have in there? It's like a three volt battery. So okay, then it's probably running at like three volts. So I don't think they have a buck boost or anything like that to increase it. Yeah, because mine just has a one cell lipo, so it's got to be running at like three point yeah, seven volts. Bas- basically the same that I am. Interesting. <clears throat> so I don't have an issue with it. At least with that side of it. I have an issue with the electronics physically locking up and it losing connection or the board going into some weird state that even when I reset it, it doesn't work. And I have to physically disconnect and reconnect the battery because the reset button doesn't actually reset it to a working state. No, that's a that's a really annoying thing that I've run into where you push the button and it resets the program or it's supposed to reset the program and it'll connect and then I'll get it all put together. And within two minutes, it'll disconnect again. And it will be unresponsive. So I'll tear it apart, push the button. It'll reset. It'll connect. And then it'll work for a few seconds. And then it'll disconnect. And then if I unplug and replug the battery, that resets it. That hard reset actually works. So I have no idea what's going on internally that would cause that. It's really annoying. Yeah, that is interesting. So anyways. Probes. Probes. (laughs) There's no good options on the market right now. Well, for under six grand. <laughs> There's no good options at our price point on the market right now. Anyways. So, yeah, frustrations with that. Other than that, just working on getting the guy kicked out of the shop. He's actually starting to clear stuff out. Was he supposed to be out by the end of September? Yes. So we had a thing called Picket Time on 59 where he was supposed to sell all of his crap. And I think he sold like three items. At least that's my theory. Because like nothing sold. And I yeah. stopped by his shop once during the whole event. And he had a big sign out front that said something along the lines of everything in our store has been priced at what we think it's worth. If you make us a reasonable offer, we might consider it. So not and, exactly a fire sale. Yeah. Yeah. And so he didn't move very much. And his place was pretty much dead during the whole event, even though there was literally cars everywhere. And he had huge signs everywhere that said, pick a time on 59 store closing. Like, I think people came in there and they're like, oh, your prices are still really high. And you're not really wanting to bargain. So, no. Yeah. So when does he have to legally be out of there? Saturday last week or last Saturday. (laughs) Are you going to like charge him rent or something? Like, I don't what do know. You do? My, my uncle's been dealing with him. And the problem is, is my uncle's a pushover. And yeah. he's and he's out of state right now. He's in Europe. And so he's been the main point of contact. And we're basically screaming at my uncle to tell him to get all his crap out of there so that we're so that he can be the one point of contact. Because we don't have time to mess with him. Because we're we're hustling with all the stuff that's got to be done by middle of October. uh, Middle to end of October. And which is a whole nother topic. But we're we're still swamped. And it's kind of insane the amount of parts that we really need to be making per day um, to meet everything. 
um, which is a whole other level of stress. But we can't, long story short, we can't be messing with this guy in the shop until end of October, realistically. So we've been letting him deal with it, and he is too nice. Because if it was me and I was talking to him, I'd tell him that his stuff is either going to be in a dumpster or it's going to be out of, or it's going to be somewhere where he wants. So, because we need to get in there and start working on it. Yep. So. Sorry, going back a conversation here. So I found the probe that Sile ships with their machines. It is the Pioneer touch probe, which thanks Pioneer for choosing a um, actual like NASA probe as your name, because that makes Googling it hard. And I'm not able to find specific pricing, but it says between $400 and $3,600 for a system. Really? Which puts it at somewhere between a lot and a little bit cheaper than Renishaw. Hmm. So I don't know. That's something to look into. Um, I thought yeah. they were an American company. I'm very wrong about that. They are a Chinese company. Hmm. So I don't see any, I don't see any listed pricing other than that. But uh, it's definitely, it's, like the, it's definitely like Chinese, interesting. This looks identical to the Renishaw website. Yeah, because like, they're a knockoff in every way. I'm sure. Yeah, like like I've been looking at so many Renishaw probes. That, like looking at this, it is almost identical to Renishaw. That's hilarious. Yep. So half the price. Yeah, I'd be interested. I need to. So what do I do? Do I get a translator? This also says minimum order quantity, 100 sets. <laughs> what? <laughs> but I'm on globaltradecenter.com, which is kind of Alibaba-ish looking. I wonder if they are they on Alibaba? I've been using Alibaba. Did I tell you about that? For the... Mm-hmm. Um, the tool company thingy that I'm working on. Oh, okay. Because um, I had my samples come in here and, you know, I got those from from China. I'm obviously not grinding the tools myself. And I don't think uh, any of my customers will care. They, they'll care about the price and that's about it. Hmm. Let's see. This is, we've gotten to the exciting part of the podcast where Harrison and I look at the internet while <laughs> live streaming. It's, it's an internet commentary now. And I can't even share share because I'm on a new computer. Hmm. Are you got a new computer or are you using a different computer? So now that Scott is no longer at Design the Everything, um, I took Scott's computer. Oh, so, gotcha. This was actually his computer that he built when he started DTE. And it's a pretty beefy computer because he built it for video editing. And when he left, I was like, can I buy that from you? Because my computer, the one I use right now, it was a pretty good computer when I first bought it. Like it was a you know top of the line laptop. Mm-hmm. But that was in like 2012 or so. And it just got, it's getting old. And so when, when Scott was leaving, I was like, his computer, freshly built, brand new. You could probably do just about anything on this computer. And I was like, can I have that? And he, yeah. So uh, it also helps because it gets some money in Scott's pocket. And he kind of needs it right now because he's jobless. <laughs> Fair. 
Fair enough. Not well, that I don't, but he agreed to take a couple payments on it. So, okay, works out for both of us. Good deal. So yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else major. The Haas demo day's kind of been the the big thing on my mind, and it's really solidified my need for a better mill. I've been First, running. You need a workshop that you can move yes. into. Yes. I have been running more parts on the uh, the local university's mini mill, and it ran a three eighths tool and stainless like a champ. Oh, I'm sure. And then I switched over to a half inch, and it felt like it felt like it machined the half inch, similar to how the Tormach handles a three eighths. I kept having all kinds of problems. It was a long reach half inch, which is probably the issue more than anything. Because it had plenty of torque, but it, it didn't have the rigidity it needed. Interesting. And I ended up using a high efficiency milling strategy, and it didn't have a it. It was on the edge of screeching, but it it the finish looked really good. So, um, for those that are curious, I was running around two hundred and fifty SFM with a chip load of around. Two to three thou. I think I ended up at around two point two point three thou feet per tooth, and at a depth of about three quarters of an inch and a step over of around thirty thou. I up until you said a step over thirty thou, I was about to say I feel like I've run these on my, this on my Tormach before, but I was not doing a step over of thirty thou. So. Oh, I I do stepovers of a cor- of a eighth inch on my Tormach with a quarter inch tool. I'll do a half the diameter of my quarter inch tool, so what? So I can get almost a half half cubic inch of material removal on the Tormach with a quarter inch tool and stainless. And I did. I ran the numbers on this one, and it was just under a half. So I was I was doing the same type of material re- removal on my on the Haas as I was on my Tormach. So in one respect I was really impressed with what I could do with the quarter inch tool on my Tormach. But the half inch tool on the Haas, it was kind of blowing me away how how slow I was having to run it without it screeching and and sounding absolutely horrible. But the couple differences there is one this was a four flute on a four flute um half inch tool and I'm running a five flute quarter inch tool on the Tormach. And if you compare the three eights, I was running a three eights half inch, uh, three eights five flute. And I removed twice the material in under half the time with the three eights and at a, at a one inch stick out. And so I think my MRR on that was around two inches. Two cubic inches a minute. Yeah, I bet. I bet with some tuning and some more time to play, you could have gotten the half inch better, because that sounds low to me. It's it sounds incredibly low to me, and I I I was playing with all kinds of settings trying to get it to work, and I and it's a hundred percent a rigidity issue. It had the horsepower, that was not the issue, not in the slightest. I couldn't keep it from chattering and screeching 
And it didn't, it didn't, like, the finish where it was chattering didn't look horrible. And it didn't look like it was damaging the tool at all. But it was so loud. And one, I'm in a university setting, so I didn't really want to go too loud. Because it's, it's in a building where people are teaching classes and whatnot. But it was just like, it shouldn't be that loud and it shouldn't chatter that much. Was it rubbing because you were running it too slow? Because that is a half inch end mill. No, so you need a, a higher so, feet per tooth. So the settings I started out with was a three quarter inch depth, half a uh, quarter inch step over, and a feed SFM of three hundred, and a feed per tooth of uh, three point four thou per tooth. Um, and that's kind of what Haas was recommending. Although I did, I did check and. I was looking at the five eighths tool, not the quarter inch tool on the feed per tooth. And it was supposed to be uh two nine. So I tried lowering that first and that helped, but I was still screeching like crazy. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so what I ended up doing was um, I ended up looking up one of Haas's five flute tools. Cause Haas's website, the different feeds and speeds charts that they have are all over the place. They've been upgrading. They've been updating them slowly. Um, and the four flute that I was using did not have an updated speeds and feeds chart. So I went to a five flute and I basically copy pasted all of the feeds and speeds it was recommending minus a flute. And that's when I got my high efficiency feeds and speeds. And I got my step over my SFM and my feed per tooth from a five flute tool. And that's ultimately what ended up working and not screeching and gave me Pretty good surface finish. I wonder if it would have been happier with like a high feed strategy. That's what I, that's what, that's what worked. That's what I did. I think we need to find terms here. How are you defining high efficiency milling? Small step over at relatively high SF or higher SFMs with a bigger chip load. And full depth of cut, a large depth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. A high feed milling would be a much faster feed per tooth with a, probably wider width of cut, but a low depth of cut. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe were you using an adaptive tool path or like a pocketing strategy? Adaptive. I wonder if the machine would have liked a, a pocketing strategy better. I don't know. Um, it was 304 stainless steel and it seemed really rough 304. Like I've run some 304 that it's not an issue, but this particular brand of 304 that I was using was definitely on the harder end of 304s I've run. I've definitely had 304s that I could run three, four, 500 SFM, no problem. This one, anything over 250 SFM, immediately, no matter the strategy, would cause really loud, bad noises. Interesting. So regardless of, uh, of the machining strategy I did. I think one of the things that's interesting about the two different kinds of machining we do is generally I don't hear bad sounds. I hear either good cutting sound or silence, uh, aka a broken tool. So I actually yeah. kind of find it interesting that you're dealing with screeching because that's generally not something I deal with, except maybe in like tight corners with a longer tool, I'll get some squealing. But normally it's either cutting or broken. Yeah. No, I I deal with loud noises on the Tormach and apparently even louder noises on the 
Haas. <laughs> more power, <laughs> more power means more chatter better. <laughs> so, yeah. I showed you this tool, right? Yeah. This is one of this is the quarter inch diameter sample tool from from China. I have been meaning to run this. I I got a bunch of volunteers to try them out for me. I meant to send them yesterday and I got distracted and I didn't. So I should probably do that tonight. But I don't know if this tool is going to work. I really hope it does because it is awesome and it has gotten a really good response from people. So when I first kind of pitched the idea a couple of months ago, there's a lot of people that are like, meh. But once people have seen the tool and been like, oh, it's like 95% carbide and, you know, 5% air as opposed to a, to a traditional tool that's like 50% air. People have been more optimistic about it. So I don't know. I need to make chips with it. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really cool. So. And I got pricing back in for, for bulk, bulk buying. And I should be able to be fairly close to like Lakeshore Carbide prices, kind of in that price range. So not like super cheap Amazon specials, but not Harvey tool. And that's exactly where I wanted to be. So, yeah. Cool. That's exciting. I, I will be excited to see where those tools end up going. So here's a question for you. Are there any oddball tools that you would like to have, but they're either like too expensive or like you just can't find them? I have a couple. So I haven't actually looked to see how hard it would be to do this. I'm pretty sure Harvey has some good options for this, but it would be interesting for what you're doing, which is a lower tooth count and, and whatnot. So I watched some videos on fusion 360 programming, and they were showing how to make lathe parts on a mill and doing undercuts with a slitting saw. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really liked that idea. Um, but I wonder, interesting thing I haven't seen is a, uh, kind of like a single flute idea applied to a slitting saw. If you had interesting. So if you could like skip teeth, would that help with machine rigidity at all or anything like that? Like, cause a lot of slitting saws have a ton of teeth. Yeah. And they, they pretty much vary the teeth based off of the diameter of the tool. But I have a hard time with the torque at the lower RPMs. Mm. And so Ooh, I don't that's know if a you good could, idea. I don't know if you could change the strategy on that and have less teeth. That way you can get into a higher RPM range. That is a really interesting idea. Though the idea of putting any sort of saw onto like a nomad is kind of terrifying. Or like onto a Shapeoko. But it is something that those people can't do. Yeah. So that's a good idea. I will look into that. Uh, it would probably be a uh, like a key seat cutter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I that that is a good idea. Because I love, you know, love me some salami. Some salami yeah. slice method. And so that's just that's just something that I don't really see existing in that side of things. And that I still struggle with my Tormach just because of how low RPMs you have to run to use those things. And it's uh, kind of annoying. So. But the SFM is probably that's, that's the other problem is if you reduce the number of teeth, that doesn't really adjust your SFM because that's dependent upon your diameter, right? Correct. But it would help with the the um, the loading the torque requirement, and that's yeah. kind of what we care about. 
yeah, you care more about the torque requirements rather than the actual. Yeah, so that would help. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, another idea I had was I'm going to do the same thing, you know, long, you know, stubby uh, single flute, but as a ball mill. I would also like some, and I don't know what, what like flute counts they're going to look like, but I would like some larger diameter tools with a aggressive um, bull nose. So like a, I don't know, a, probably a three eighths inch tool with like a eighth inch radius or something like that. Yeah. Which again, these exist other places, but they're not super common. I would also like to do a fairly short uh, ball nose with like a million flutes, like eight flutes or something for surfacing. Trying to think if there's anything else that I've run into. So here's another interesting question. I've heard that the variable flute chamfer tools make a pretty big difference. I wonder if you could do a variable flute, like single flute chamfer mill. Like, like a, like a, like a, like when I say variable flutes, I mean something that's you, not straight, like a curved flute. A, yeah. The, a helix, the a helix, cham, a helix chamfer tool. That's a single flute. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. Just because the, the straight edges, um, and it's something that I've been, I've been meaning to get at some point is a chamfer tool that has a helix on it. Um, just because I hear it leaves a much better surface finish. Yeah, that's what I use the the Lakeshore one, and I've been very happy with it. And so, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to a single flute for one of those, and specifically for large cuts, because it. I feel like the larger your tool diameter is, the less flutes you need for lower horsepower machines. And having a very variable helix single flute large width chamfer tool seems very unique to me. So, it's another yeah, thought. I mean, large single flute. Uh, chamfer tools are pretty common. Yeah, but I don't think any of them have a helix angle. Yeah, but none of them would have a helix angle. So, what else? Also, a like a face mill that you can stick in a in a with a three eighths inch shank, so that it'll mm-hmm. fit in an ER sixteen collet. Um, and by face mill, I mean like five eighths of an inch or a half inch, something that a a, a pocket NC or a Nomad could handle. Uh, Mm-hmm. Maybe more like a fly cutter kind of setup. That's another thing on my list. Yeah, that's about all I could think of off the top of my head. That are kind of unique, interesting tools that could be cool to see. Yeah. But need to get these ones tested first and then figure out if people actually want to buy them. So far, I'm still only like $160 invested in this thing. And I want to prove it out before I go more than that. Yeah. That's cool, though. What else? Just staying busy. That's about all I got. I'm just... I'm so ready to be in a new shop and with new equipment. Like, I feel like everything I have is a jank setup on, like, professional machining job shop machining levels. And uh, I'm... I've got the business flow and cash flow to go to the next level and i'm i'm getting frustrated with the shortcomings of everything that's around me well be prepared there's two things that are happening in your very near future so one you're going to buy your new shop or you're going to be able to move into your new shop and it's going to take you what do we decide on like 
13.5 times longer than you expect to get it up and running and in good condition. Mm. The other thing is you are going to remove your current bottleneck of your mill and that new bottleneck is going to immediately fall on being your time. Yes. So be prepared for that because that will happen. And Oh, yeah. Your natural reaction is going to be just to work through it. My 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 time is already a bottleneck, more so than the machines. The machines are already sitting more than they should today, right now. That's a bottleneck we're feeling right now, which is not a good good thing. So when we get moved over into the new shop, another thing we're going to be considering is our first employee. So that's something we got to get figured out. Because I feel like if we can keep the parts flowing and keep them coming in, I could pay someone to produce parts all day. Um, if I can, if I can focus on programming, or Weston can focus on programming, and we can have if if we're both doing something, and there's someone that's always running parts every day, um, I think we can keep him. We can keep someone busy doing that. But you need to the build pro- the systems right now. Yes, and that's something we've been working on, and. Things like probing, like the more smarts I can build into my code to make it less risky to the machine crashing, the better. And so that's something I am trying to do more of is get everything programmed in such a way that I can hand it off to someone and they can just run it and the probe will correct issues if things are misloaded. So I've been experimenting with probing it apart and then stopping the machine if it detects an error and how a part's loaded. And and how far off can I go before I'm either going to crash a probe or um, run into other problems. And so I've been started down that path and trying to debug and come up with reliable, safe solutions. I've broken a couple probe tips in this process so far. But that's part of the the learning curve of programming in such a way that um, because I have a probe at my disposal with a wireless probe and I can use it more, I'm trying to figure out all the different cases I can use it in. um, And that's causing me to break some stylus in the, in that process, but it'll make for a more reliable process. If I stick someone in front of it and say, Hey, load these parts, put them here, do this, do that. And then I don't have to worry as much about them doing something bad. Won't be able to solve everything, but I can at least check. Would would your employee be doing setups at all? I don't know. It, it okay, all depends fair. on the type of employee we get. Um, I have no idea what skill level the employee will be able to afford. I know that as a company standard, I I, I know a lot of people that have manufacturing companies and i know some of them will hire people that are very low hourly rate for a reason and i don't want to become one of those shops i want to hire high quality people at high pay that are high performers and then i want to have a lot of automation so basically i don't want to have a company size larger than probably around 10 people if i can help it but I want to have a crap ton of machines and I can spread that labor out over many machines. So that's my goal. 
but I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to that with my first employee. Um, and that's what I got to figure out. So if you live near Harrison and are interested in a machining job, reach out to Harrison at Harrison.com. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I got, a, I, I, I have a lot of people who have been interested for a while. Really? Yeah. I have a local high school that I um, graduated from and I know a lot of the parents and kids and a lot of them want their kids to come work at my shop. Um, I work at a university and so I have a lot of guys there who have wanted to come work at my shop. And then at my old job, I have a lot of people that I worked with in the past that are like, Hey, if you're ever hiring, let me know because I hate this job too. And they want to come work with me. And I'm just like, to all of you, I have no money, <laughs> but that's changing. And I'm going to need an employee in the near future. So it's going to be a change of mindset. And I, it's trying to figure out when I can hire my first employee, even though I need him, I have to make sure I can have a guaranteed income for them for a set amount of time because yeah, I, yeah. Maybe what you need to do is like right now, hire an intern, be like, okay, this is a, eight week program or a 16 week thing. Come work for me 16 weeks, learn about some machining, learn some other stuff. And what that'll do is break all of your systems that you didn't know sucked. Cause there will be some. And yeah. you know, then you have a one that could turn into a potential employee Two, you have an easy out. If things, you know, don't go forwards cause it's a pre set time. Like they're not expecting to stay longer. Mm-hmm. And whatever point I'm on D it'll be cheaper. Yeah. I've thought about that. There's a lot of engineers that I could potentially hire as a summer intern, but I don't think they would stay long-term because I probably can't offer them engineering levels of pay whenever they graduate. But that's but perfect. It would... Like you just need someone to come in and like, it, like break all our stuff, break all of your systems. Yeah. That's a good point. And do valuable work while they're doing that. Yeah. I have thought about seeing if they could like run the mill at the university, like getting them <laughs> trained up. And then just like, that gives me an extra machine. that's like, Hey, between classes, can you run these parts? <laughs> I feel like there might be some ethical issues here, but I like where your head's at. Uh, you, you know, I say that, but I joked about that with the professors at the university and they were co totally cool with it. <laughs> so, so if there is ethical issues, other than like, like you're paying someone, it the only ethical issue would be the fact that the equipment is not mine. But everyone who is paying for the equipment is like, hey, if it gets used, it's been sitting. Like, I I'm pretty much the only one that's using it. So I think the more use they can see getting out of that investment, even if it like they got it to teach their kids. So if they have a kid that is running it, like. To them, that's a win. <laughs> Fair enough. So. I will say, I just saw a job posting for my local technical college. It's basically your exact thing there. And I'm like, I could do that. I would consider that. Yeah. It'd probably it's help if I knew how to run anything other than a Tormach, but. Yeah. For me, I've, I'm, I wing most of it. I'll be honest. Like, I don't have a. I, and I told him that up front. I said, hey. I said, I have a part-time, I have a, a business I'm trying to get off the ground. 
I'm more than willing to come in and offer my expertise, but I am not a teacher. And so far they've been chill with it. They they've enjoyed it. And they said all their students love their class, which is probably true because I don't have homework. So, <laughs> so it's pretty easy to be the favorite professor if you don't have homework. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I could actually approach it a little bit more like from a uh, academia level. I don't know. Like I Probably. am used to presenting information because like I, you know, I have my YouTube videos I have that I totally do all the time. Like I have this podcast, like I'm used to talking in front of people and I feel like I could figure out how to present information in an effective way. I, that being said in a machining class, here's a machine go make stuff is probably the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do need to have more structure. The first two times I've taught the CNC class, it's been more like, here's a part, program it, show me what you've done. I'll correct problems that you're running into. Um, and then at the very end, I'll go through how I would do it. I probably need to change my strategy to more, this is how you program a part, this is how you run a part, and just show them everything instead of having them figure it out on their own just so I can get a little bit further along. The thing that I've been trying with my teaching style has been more of, I want you to hit your head against the wall a few times before I tell you the answer. Just because that's how life works. <laughs> Cause that's how life works. And cause I, so many of these kids, they're like, okay, what's the answer? And you can get through more content. If you just tell them the answer but there's more value in you hitting your head against the wall multiple times before you. And then I come in and give you the answer because you'll learn it and understand it at a much deeper level because I've learned both ways. And the, and the professors who've said, hit your head against the wall. And then I'll tell you the answer. I've retained that information way more than someone that's just like, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. You're done. And it's just like, okay, I just followed a tutorial where I did everything that it said, and I have no idea why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could sit down and come up with like, you know, a hundred different theoretical classes of parts and teach a specific method for machining each one of those parts. Well, you know, you could have like, this is a block that is, you know, this is a, this is a rectangular part that has, you know, just two operations. And then you could like teach them the strategy for camming that. And then mm -hmm. you can go, okay, this is a block that has three operations and teach them the strategy for camming that. And yeah. just like you could, if you really wanted to systematically go through a bunch of different part classes. This is a round part with, you know, three operations and two cross holes. And this is how you approach it. But like in the real world, parts don't always fit into those neat little things in the true yeah. value of a machinist is being able to bash your head into a wall until you get good working part, you know, a good program with good speeds and feeds that, you know, yeah. fit perfectly in the center of AJ's Venn diagram of, of cutting parameters and everything just works. Yeah. Um, except for the fact that these guys aren't going to be machinists, which is the other side of that equation. They're going to be engineers. And so. In that case, engineers need to learn problem solving. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of the approach I've been taking. And it's because in in education, and specifically, this is my number one problem with engineering when I was in school. And it's not the university's fault completely. 
if they want to have the right accredit accreditations to be, you know, engineering and all that kind of stuff, they have to have so many different classes. And so to be enough to fit an engineering degree in a, in a four year program, you end up needing around like 150 hours of classes, which is a full load for all four years. And so like, there's not much wiggle room where they can fit in some like practical classes. And so, because I've tried to get CNC, not CNC, CAD classes into the program my whole time I was there. And one, the professors didn't really know uh, CAD very well. And two, they would always say there's no available time slots in the schedule that we require that we can fit them into. My argument to that would always be, well, just make it a an elective class and offer it. And then students who re recognize the value in it can take it. Did you get electives in your program? Because I got zero electives. I had a couple of things where it was like, you, you got two. Yeah, I had mm -hmm. a couple of things where it was like, here is a list of 20 classes, take five of them. But yeah, I never had an elective. I also... It took me five and a half years to graduate, but yeah. I had a full-time job for most of it and a wife and a kid. Yeah, it was, it was, I could have two electives and they were one hour each. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> of credit. So it was like a two hour class. And I basically did production techniques and welding, which are the two classes I'm teaching. Um, sorry, production techniques, which is the welding class. And then um, they had a machining class which has turned into CNC machining. So, which actually, for those of you watching the video, this was my first part that I turned while I was at university. So we made this on a, a grizzly, a grizzly lathe. Yeah, it's a plumb bob. So it's incredibly sharp because I was an idiot and made it too sharp. <laughs> I mean, that seems like exactly the thing a college student do. I can go get my first part. Should so, I get my first part? Sure. Okay, this is for the video people. But anyways, for those of you that can't see, it's a brass plumb bob with a... I want to say it's a stainless steel tip, but it might just be a steel tip. Um, it hasn't rusted at all, so it might. It probably is stainless. I don't have a magnet with me. But it's threaded into the end. Nice, a little hammer. So, yep, a little hammer. On the lathe, we just, you know, turn straight, turn a taper, do a thread. On the hammer, we did, you know, mill a flat, turn it over, mill a flat. And of course, this like this was basically all set up for us. Like we did very little yeah. actual work on these. And then later they made us come back and do a bunch of engravings on them that we had to hand program on a um I believe it was a TMOP or TM2P, something in there. Yeah. And I didn't want to hand program. You were supposed to hand program like a design and a lot of people went all out and hand programmed some pretty like ornate things. I did a bunch of circles in a line and it looks really impressive, but it's basically just the same circle over and over and over again. Cause I thought learning to hand pro, pro to hand program G code was stupid. And I kind of still agree with that. Yeah. This is the box I welded in production techniques. Very with nice. The with the idea that 
because I did the I did the machining class first, and so the idea was I was going to make this box that I was going to have the plumb bob stick in, and I got the box all welded out. Um, the last thing I didn't do because I ran out of time was I was going to cut cut it and split it into two halves, so a lid and a base, and then I was going to put wood on the inside and turn it and have it be a a metal box with a wood inlay. That'd be cool. Which technically I could still do, and that's maybe a project, a fun little side project I should finish out at some point. It would be fun to have it up on end vertically and hang the plumb bob down, so it's like oh, hanging like on a string. That would actually be really cool. And then you don't maybe, have to cut up your pretty box. Maybe that's what I intended all along, and I just yeah. <laughs> it took me took me years to realize it. It's <laughs> <laughs> obviously a really good idea. All right, well, I think we're off the rails, shall we? Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, I have a plug. Uh, I keep forgetting to say this. If you have a, a business that makes physical products or offers a service that makes physical things, we would like to promote you on this podcast for free. Send me a message, and I will give you a free plug in the the next episode that um, like the next episode after you send me a message. So if you would like free promotion, we will gladly shill for free. And now I'm playing the music. You're playing the music and I'm playing with a plumb bob. Well, this is your I'm cue to do the outro, so. Yeah, I know, I know. All right. Enough going down memory lane. We've come to that part of the episode where we say goodbye. And before we say goodbye, we got to make sure that you go tell everyone you know about our podcast. So, those of you that are listening, Go retell everyone as I get ink everywhere because I grabbed a pen and apparently it's got a busted tip. So, anyways, as I try not to touch my face and smear ink all over myself, we appreciate all of you that have listened to the podcast. And uh, this is Harrison with Precision Ingenuity signing out with AJ from Design Me Everything. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. That too. Oh, I hit the wrong